It's good to see you here today on what feels like the first uh, Sunday of autumn, doesn't it? What a nice to get up this weekend and finally feel like we're not living at the equator or something. And isn't this the best Sunday of the whole year? Just that extra hour of sleep. Man, worship just feels that much better to have actually gotten a little more rest. Uh, let me take a moment to say welcome to those of you who are joining us online, either live or catching this later in the week. It really is uh, a big deal to us that even when you can't be here, that you choose to be a part of Freedom by tuning in online. And so welcome to Freedom Online. Today we're beginning a new series, and I'm excited about this. I'm glad you're here today on the front end of this. It's a series that's entitled Back to Virtue. We're going to get back to some of the real meat and potatoes of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Don't you ever just feel like when you listen to and interact with other Christians here in Western culture that a lot of people have lost a sense of what it means to truly live as a Christian? That we've dumbed this thing down or so specialized our beliefs so that it's really wrapped around just a few things like you know the one virtue that's left for christians is just be nice just be nice all the time as if that were a virtue and it's not or you know we feel like christianity begins to be defined by the things that we're supposed to stand against you know whatever That list is be against abortion or against homosexuality or against whatever the thing is that you're you feel like you're supposed to hate. And yet you read the scriptures and you realize that's not Christianity. What does it mean to truly live a Christian life? What we're going to be talking about in the next several weeks is the meat and potatoes of what a Christian really should look like as we talk about getting back to the fundamental virtues of our faith. Now, I want to open today with a quote from Abraham Lincoln. We're about to have an election here in a couple of days, and oh, that we would one day return to the place that we would elect a man like Abraham Lincoln. But uh, he, he was a wise guy, and at times uh, his wisdom came out in sort of ironic ways. He, he said this about virtue, because I realize this is a term that we don't um, just throw around all the time or maybe get our heads completely around. But he said, it's been my experience that those who have no vices have very few virtues. I want you to chew on that one for just a minute. Those who have no vices have very few virtues. Now, on the surface of that, it's like, so what does that mean? I've got to go be bad in order to learn to be good? (laughs) No, when you really have time to let that one sink in, what it means is we're all bad. It's only those who realize their, their own sin, their own failures, who will ever work toward obtaining grace and help that we'll ever pursue the virtues that Christ wants to build into our lives. You see, it's only the person who realizes, I've got so much uncleanness in my life. I've got such struggles with impurities in my thought life or in my actions that I'm going to have to run to Christ and seek the virtue of purity. It's only the person who realizes the vice who will ever embrace the virtue. So Lincoln's right. The person who never has any vices, you're not going to see much virtue. There's good news in what Lincoln's saying. When you begin to realize the depth of your own depravity, when you begin to realize your own failures, those are the things that drive us to pursue Christ and the solution that he has for our failures. And so we're going to dive into issues like virtues, like loyalty, things like integrity, uh, purity, Uh, gratitude, but today we're going to be talking about honor. Now, 
as I said, I realize virtue is a word that we hear thrown around, but we may not could easily define it. If you looked up virtue, I'll just tell you that, that the term virtue means moral excellence. Would you agree with me that there ought to be something different about Christians morally? I don't mean that we should run around patting ourselves on the back or, or congratulating ourselves on how we're superior to everybody else. But shouldn't Christians, especially over time, be different morally from the rest of the world? Because we possess Christian virtues. It means moral excellence. It means integrity of character, strength, or potency. And so we're going to talk about embracing these things that Christ wants to build into our lives. These are are very specific ways that Christ invites us to live different from what our nature would call us to. So today, as we press in and talk about honor, I want to just start by pointing out uh, something that's, that's really worth noting about honor in our culture. I've been on a lot of mission trips over the years. I've lost count of how many times I've been on mission trips and how many times I've been out of the country on mission trips. But one of the things that I've observed, no matter what country I've had a chance to go in and minister, that there are always things that you need to know in advance about how to honor the people that you're working with, and particularly the people who will host you any time that you come into another country, how you honor them, how they're going to want to honor you so that you're careful to receive that appropriately, and that you're very very guarded that you don't do the things that would dishonor them. And so in the early years, we went into Mexico every single year for a long span of time, and not just to the border. We'd go on down into the country, and there were a few things that we had to learn there to be careful to do to honor them. One of the things that um, we did to honor their customs and all was, and, and the ladies were never crazy about this, because it was hotter, than, it felt like hotter than Hades itself. It was just so hot in, in the time of year that we would go, but the ladies had to wear uh, full-length skirts any time that we went outdoors and, and anybody could see us. And it, Just a number of little things like that that you do to honor the customs of the people who were there. They were very grateful for that. When we've been into Cuba, we had to learn things that you did to honor and be careful not to dishonor that were very different about what we did at the table when you'd gather for mealtime and how you'd honor one another at the table. But there's probably no place that we've had to be uh, uh, more thoughtful about the whole issue of honor than in all the trips that we've taken into Africa to minister. And of all the different camps that we've been into it would and, and villages, it would almost always be the same, that they are so geared toward the issue of honor that you couldn't even begin to do ministry in those places until you had been formally received and honored by them. I'll never forget the very first time that we went into Africa. And we are, I mean, we have driven 10 or 12 hours into the boonies to get where we are. And, and you're just thinking, first of all, is there anybody here? We get there and it doesn't seem like there's, there's anybody there. And, you know, would anybody have any clue that we're coming? Because you just feel like you're on the, the dark side of the moon. And so we're setting up camp and we're getting ready to do our, our medical missions and evangelism and stuff. And there's hardly anyone there. But we've been told you cannot begin until you've been formally received. And there has to be a ceremony to honor you and receive you appropriately. And we're like, wonder what that's going to look like and when that's going to happen. And then you hear the sound in the distance over the hill. The drums and the chanting voices as the locals have, have gathered in a procession and they are slowly kind of dancing and marching and, and to the beat of the drums, they're, they're marching their way to us. And what they're doing is they're ushering in a welcoming ceremony to honor us and welcome us and you, you are not allowed to do ministry until you've been formally welcomed. So you have to set aside an hour or two on the front end of each week and two or three hours on the back end because there's an even bigger ceremony where you have to honor one another 
and there's the whole exchange of gifts and it's a big deal it's huge to them to be able to honor the leaders of the group that's come to serve them and you know Honestly, it got really awkward at times because it, it's so important in the exchange of formal honors that they've got to give gifts. And so they'd give different things. They'd wrap you in their, their garb. And, um, that you know, one of the things that they gave me was a real specially carved chief's stick that, that, you know, was a way of bestowing honor. But the trickiest ones were the animals. Now, I like animals as well as the next person, I guess. But I'm not a real big bird person. And they, they like to give animals to bestow honor. And so I'll just never forget some of the places that we've been that they would bring out animals and, you know, just gift after gift. And they, they want to hand them to you. And so I'm like, I can handle dead chickens. I can handle fried chickens. I don't do live chickens. So, you know, when they would, as, as the leader of the group, you know, they're like, they're giving you live chickens. And I'm like, what do you do with a live chicken when you're in a ceremony? Thankfully, we had an African team leader on our side helping me with the live animals. They literally handed off animals I could not identify. I'll never forget some filthy thing that had been rolling around in the mud. They didn't have a rope to tie around its neck, so they, they brought him in, walking on three legs. They're using the, the fourth leg as a rope. leading. It looked like something that was a cross between a sheep and a goat. We lovingly called it a shoat, and that was how they honored was to give us a dirty shoat. But it, anyway, the point of all this is there are all these different things that are done as a way of exchanging honor. And members of our team would be like, can we just... By the time you've been there for a couple of weeks and you've done all these ceremonies, they're like, could we just skip the final ceremony in this village? Because we could minister to another hundred people if we just had those three hours back. And it's like, no, you can't. Because honor is such a big deal. If you You will dishonor them if you don't allow them this opportunity to formally honor one another. It's a big, big deal. You know, in some cultures, honor is bestowed by you must bring a gift. And in some honors, uh, in some cultures, they honor each other with a, a small bow. It's just little ways of honoring one another. Now, here's the thing that I'm getting to. If somebody asks you the question, okay, I, I'm an outsider wanting to visit your country. So what is it in your country that you do to honor one another that you want to, that I, I want to make sure as a foreigner that I would do so that I appropriately honor the people that I'm around? Wouldn't you struggle with that question? Because at the heart of the matter, there's not much of anything that we do to honor one another, is there? I mean, what do we do in our culture? We'll shake hands, but that's not really much of an honor. I mean, there's just not much that we do in our culture to show honor to one another, and yet this is one of the most fundamental virtues of the followers of Christ, is that we would honor each other. I want us to look together this morning at a passage of Scripture that talks about honor and what's lost when we fail to honor each other. Now, I realize right now this may seem like an ambiguous term. If you'll hang with me for just a few minutes I promise you, you'll leave knowing exactly what we're talking about and how we need to apply this because it's very straightforward. But I want us to look together in Mark chapter 6, the, the opening verses. It's just a real uh, short text here setting the stage. Jesus is returning to Nazareth. You'll remember that's where Jesus was raised. It's not where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem, but his family, his mom and dad weren't from Bethlehem. They, were, they just had to make a quick visit to Bethlehem and Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then they had to flee to Egypt. So probably from about the ages of 2 to about 30, Jesus lived in the mountain village of Nazareth. It's quite remote and cut off. I've been there. It's still a remote village. It's just larger than it was in Jesus' day. And Jesus has apparently, based on what we read in Luke 4, has 
after doing a bit of ministry, has come back to Nazareth in Luke 4, and it did not go well. In fact, some of the people got so stirred up at Jesus that they tried to go throw him off of a cliff, and it's one of those freeze-frame moments where God won't let Jesus be killed yet, and Jesus is able to escape. So that didn't go so well. Now, Jesus has spent about a year out doing public preaching and ministry, and this is where he's really gone public for a year's time, and he has already quickly a a great following of people because he's healed so many people and he preaches with authority like no one has ever had before and so now after a year's time out he comes back to where mom and dad have lived and where his brothers and sisters are probably still living and so we're really curious to see it did not go well at all the year before when he made his first return let's see what's going to happen when jesus returns to nazareth verse One of Mark 6, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. It's hard not to be amazed when you hear Jesus preach. You can only imagine what that must have sounded like. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. It's interesting, a little glimpse of realizing that Jesus was the oldest child of Mary and sort of adopted child of Joseph. But he's got at least four brothers and a bunch of sisters, and they've all grown up in Nazareth as well. And these people are looking at him saying, we know this guy. I mean, I've got a table at my house that he built. He's the carpenter. We know him. We know his brothers and sisters. And Jesus said to them in verse 4, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. Now, we're going to go back to this in just a moment, but I want us to, to pause right there. Jesus is pointing out there's a major problem here. And he says it's, it's a commonplace thing. I've gone out into the world, and many in the world have been drawn to me, and they honor me, but I come back to my own hometown, and because of familiarity, there's no honor. And he said, this is what happens with a prophet. This is what happens with somebody that God is doing something great in their life, that they can go back to the people who know them well, and there is no honor. It's like, ah, we know this person. We remember when they were you know, knee-high to a grasshopper. There's nothing special about him. Who does he think he is coming in here preaching like that, acting like he's somebody? And there's just no honor. And he said, when a prophet returns to his hometown. There is no honor, or there's dishonor. Now, the word that's used there in the Greek is the word atimus. It it just means to treat as common or ordinary. Now, when you understand honor, maybe understanding dishonor is the easiest way to understand honor. When you treat someone or something as common or ordinary, that dishonors it. By the way, if you want to have a mediocre, common ordinary marriage i can tell you the secret to it it's so easy dishonor your mate treat your mate as ordinary as common and you'll just have such a mediocre to miserable marriage i mean we oftentimes wonder why it is that when romance begins it just is so magical isn't it You remember what early love is like? Isn't that just so much fun when you're just so, oh, I just love you. I love it when you touch me. I love to look in your eyes. Remember that? It feels so good. I just love breathing the air that you breathe. 
And yet when time passes, instead of saying, I love breathing the air that you breathe, you want to go, you've got bad breath in the morning. Would you breathe your air somewhere else? Isn't it the truth? We just, there's some major change that has happened. What has happened? I'll tell you what's happened consistently. This is what's happened. You started out honoring each other. Isn't that what you did? Think about all the ways that you honored each other. We hold doors for one another. We give gifts to each other. We send each other flowers. We send texts. We write notes. And every one of those things are designed to say, you are so special. You are anything but ordinary. You are extraordinary. You are the most special person in the world to me. And I want to show you in every way that I can. And every one of those little acts and words and notes, those are tangible expressions of honor. Because what honor does is it builds up. It says in every way imaginable, you are so special. You are so extraordinary. And that's the other half of the deal. We, we defined what without honor or dishonor means. The, the word honor, the word, it, it looks like time, but it's the, the Greek word teme. Uh, it means to value, to respect, or to highly esteem, to treat as precious, weighty, are valuable. And you can see how in a relationship we start out expressing in all these different ways, you're so valuable to me. And over time, we just get so familiar with each other that we become forgetful or maybe disappointed. And with the passing of time, it's like, well, maybe you weren't as special as I thought you were because, you know, you... You've got faults, and you get in bad moods, and you hurt my feelings, and you disappoint me. And so we stop working so hard to honor one another, and we begin to treat each other as very common and ordinary. And instead of a magical relationship, we wind up with a very ordinary relationship. Have you experienced that? Everybody's going, I'm sitting next to my spouse. I can't acknowledge that. No, no, it's magical all the time, preacher. Can't you see? Yes, we've all experienced that. We all have to work against that. Now, let let me just illustrate what I'm talking about. Easy to understand the difference between honor and dishonor. I brought with me today uh, two pennies from my house. You know, we're at the point now, don't you just almost wish they would take the penny out of circulation so we didn't have to fool with it anymore? I mean, we, we know that technically that still has a value, but... It has so little value in our minds today. The penny is so common and so ordinary that if I took this outside and as an experiment, if I dropped it outside the door on purpose and left it there, it would be funny to watch and see how many people would pass it by before anybody would even bother to lean over and pick it up. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a quarter. Yeah, definitely a dime, maybe a nickel. I don't know. Penny, forget it. You know, don't it, it's dirty enough and valueless enough that I just don't even want to pick it up. It's just so common and ordinary. That's a picture of dishonor. I have another penny with me, though. Now, both of these came from my house. They're both pennies. They both look to be made out of the same material. You probably can't see that very well in, in that case. But I will tell you, when I when I went to get this penny this morning, I had to go in my closet, and I've got a big round thing that I just throw my change in every evening when I'm undressing and just had to dig around in my change pile in, on the floor of my closet to pull out this penny minute in 1995. We've all got them. You've probably got an ashtray full of them in your car where you just throw all of your pennies. We don't honor that. But I've got this penny and it didn't come out of the floor of my closet. It came off of a shelf in a very visible spot in my office where it's always displayed. 
And this penny always stays in a case so that I can't even touch it. You can just see it, but you can't touch it. And you can easily imagine the difference between these two pennies. This one's 21 years old. This one is 2100 years old. This one, it's a penny, but we don't call it a penny. We call it a widow's mite. It's the very same kind of coin that Jesus and the disciples witnessed the woman giving her last two copper coins into the temple treasury. And Jesus said this widow gave the most because she gave everything that she had. A widow's mite. This was minted about a hundred years before the time of Jesus. Now it's just a penny. But it's a penny that I treat differently. It was a gift to me. Jackie and Morgan, when they were on a trip, uh, thought of me and they bought this for me. It's a penny that, because it's so old, actually sells for more than 10,000 times what a penny should be worth. And so I treat it differently. I honor it. I, I wrap it in a case. I set it up on display in my office for people to see. At, at the heart of it, they're the same thing. They're both just little copper coins that are supposed to be of the least value of any kind of currency made. I choose to dishonor one. I treat it as ordinary. We leave it on the ground. I honor another. That's a simple picture of what honor is all about. It lifts up. It declares the value of another. Now, I I know that in common practice, we tend to say, I have a hard time wanting to honor Somebody in my life, I I don't want to honor my mate because they've disappointed me. They've hurt me. They aren't deserving of honor. Maybe they've been unfaithful or they didn't do something that you thought that you could count on them to do. And so they don't deserve honor. Well, here's the thing about honor. Honor isn't just given for no good reason. Honor builds the other person up. Honor actually has the power to change another. It actually lifts them beyond the ordinary when we give another person honor, which, oh, by the way, is an important key to realize that while respect is earned, honor is given. I want you to think about that for a minute. It's hard to respect somebody unless they have lived worthy of respect, right? I mean, respect is a way that you feel about someone, but honor is something you can just consciously choose to give or not give, regardless of what the other person has done. Honor is an active thing that you do. And you may feel like, yeah, but I don't want to honor this person because they just don't seem like they deserve it. Do you want them to be different from what they are now? The best way you can help them get there is to honor them because with your honor... You help them to be better than what they are, more than what they are. Maybe we're not totally convinced of that. I seriously doubt that we are. Let's return to the text and see how powerful that principle is. Jesus has said, yep, here we go again. I'm back in my hometown. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to begin to realize who it is with them. Verse 5 of Mark 6. Jesus could not didn't say would not. Jesus could not do any miracles there except to lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. One of the strangest statements in all of the New Testament. Now I realize we look at that and go, hey, that's pretty extraordinary. He still laid his hands on a few people and they got well. Look, 
If any of us in the room laid our hands on a few sick people and in one day several people got well, we'd be like, Woo! <laughs> it's been a glorious day at Freedom Church. But you've got to realize, Jesus, it has become kind of the norm for him that he'll go into a community and heal every sick person. The Gospels say that repeatedly. He went into the village and healed everybody there who was sick. He would bat a thousand. That's crazy, isn't it? He'd clean out the hospital. You know, he'd, he would just take care of all the sick. And in his own hometown, there were only a handful of people that he could heal. Isn't that a strange thing to say about the creator of the universe? That in his own hometown, he could only heal a few. Mark is very careful to link this to what Jesus has said. In this place, I'm not honored. In this place, you don't see me for who I am. You don't believe in me for who I am. And so I'm not even able to heal most of you. I can't even be for you what you need for me to be. Okay, I'm not even going to go far down that road because it messes with my head. I can't fully explain that. All I know is the principle is important for us. If Jesus was limited in what he could do and express because of a lack of honor toward him, I'll guarantee you that you and I are dumbed down in terms of who we are when we live in an environment where we are dishonored. Would you agree with that? That when you're around someone who believes the best about you, they seek to honor you and always lift you up and hold you in a high place it helps you to become the best version of you. And where the reverse of that is the case, where somebody is believing the worst about you, you'll live down to that experience. By the way, that's been proven in tests that have been done, particularly in school settings, where teachers were told certain things about their kids, where a teacher would be told of a class as an experiment that kids who actually were superior students, when, it, when teachers would be told, these are the dumbest, these are the worst, these are problem kids, and then all of the, the decline in their grades and the acting out of bad behavior because the person over them expected the worst of them, didn't honor them, didn't believe the best, and yet the reverse of that would be true. You take the kids who academically were at the worst place or a behavior were at the worst place, and you put them in an environment where the teachers are told, these are the best kids in the school, these are the smartest, these are the best. And because of what was believed about them and how they were treated as a result, they were honored and it would pull them up. This is the power of honor. When you honor another, it calls out the best. And Jesus himself was impacted by that. Where there's no honor, it dumbs us down. It pulls us down. So with that said, let's just get down to the, the heart of the matter. Where do we need to apply this? And how do we need to apply it? Four different places that the scripture is very specific that we are supposed to give honor. Four different groups of people that we're called to honor. We're just going to move through these very quickly. None of these are going to surprise you. But I want us to, to go back to what does the scripture say? First of all, we are called to honor our parents. This is a part of God's top ten list, right? In the Old Testament, when God gives the Ten Commandments, these are the ten basic things. If you're going to live human, if you're going to live above the other animals, here's what you've got to do. And one of the basics is this. Honor your father and your mother so that you can live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Paul drives the idea home further when he repeats it in Ephesians 6.3 and goes on to, uh, in 6.2 and then in verse 3 says, If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you'll have a long, healthy life. Would you agree 
that today in American culture, we have an absolute epidemic of children failing to honor their parents. Isn't it the truth? Now, we're probably more to blame for that than they are because kids do what we allow them to do or what we teach them to do. Or they fail to do what we have failed to teach them to do. But we live in a time where children have not learned, many, many children have not learned to be respectful of their parents, to honor their parents. I mean, and I'm going to say without apology, I am old school when it comes to this. Now, I try to be very careful that when I'm in this position on Sunday morning, I'm going to give you the Word of God. And I'm going to try and be careful not to mix much of me in with that. I'm going to call a time out right now for about two minutes and say something that is not the Word of God. It is Mark. So take it for what it is worth. But I grew up in a family, like probably many of you did, where when mom or dad gave a clear instruction, there are only two valid responses to that. And that is, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. And anything other than that is absolutely unacceptable. We need to return to that. We need to show that kind of honor. We live in a time where, like, the expected response is either, I don't want to, or why? Why do I have to do that? That's dishonoring in itself. We have got to to teach the fundamentals of you honor and respect your parents. And when you're growing up, that means when they give an instruction, the answer is yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, and I don't have to understand the why. Now, I know a lot of people think it's so old-fashioned and outdated, you know, even the ma'am and sir thing. We need to just get over it and go back to it. That is an appropriate way to show respect, and not just to your mama and daddy, to their whole generation. And you never outgrow it. I'm 48 years old, and you can't work it out of me. Because my mama whooped it into me. I mean, it's... She's probably watching online, and you know it's the truth, Mom. Because I mean, you, once you've got it in you, you learn to honor the generation that's above you. And you just can't help but put a Mr. or, or a Mrs. or whatever. I mean, my, my in-laws are right here. I love them to death. Some of the dearest people in the world. I cannot call you by your first names for any amount of money because I just was taught otherwise. It's Miss Becky. It's Mr. Steve. I, we live in a generation where people just love to call by first names or skip the ma'am and sir. We need to stop that. We need to look for ways to communicate honor instead of trying to dumb it down and be super familiar. I can't understand people who call their own parents by their first names. That's just weird. Okay, I'm through with my time out. I'm off my soapbox. But we need to learn to communicate honor to our parents and and to those in their generation. And honor isn't just ma'am and sir, but it is being respectful of what they say. And when we're grown and and we don't have to obey what they say, we still can be respectful of them and what they have to say. Where we don't blow them off and and just make light of them. Honor means that we're always concerned about their well-being. It's not hard to figure this one out. We just need to be thoughtful about the basic question of, am I honoring of my parents? Now, I realize that for some, for a small percentage of those of us here and watching and listening online... There's the rub of, yeah, but what if your parents have been anything but what parents are supposed to be? What if you have a parent who has been unfaithful? Maybe they're, they're a big-time 
addict and, and just have been totally dysfunctional because of that? What if their life hasn't been a respectable life at all? I will acknowledge this. It, it becomes much more complicated then. You, they may live a life that makes it impossible for you to be close to them. But you still can find ways to honor the position that they have in your life, even if you can't have an intimate relationship with them. Are you with me on that? It, it doesn't mean that we have to applaud their inappropriate behaviors. or you know, They may have a belief system that's just from Mars. It's so out there. We don't have to agree with any of that. We can still be honoring of the position that they have in, in our lives. So first of all, the scripture says to honor our parents. Secondly, we're called to honor our spouses. The writer of Hebrews says in, in chapter 13, verse 4, Marriage is to be honored by all, and husbands and wives must be faithful to each other. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians 5, as he's about to talk to husbands and wives, that you should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. One of the translations says that we should honor one another as we seek to honor Christ. Now, we could spend a long time talking about this. I'm, I'm not going to, but I'll just point out, that honor, while it's expressed in a multitude of ways, one of the most significant ways that we can do it is just by the attention that we give and the, the expression on our faces. When I think about how husbands and wives can honor each other, one of the things that just immediately comes to mind for me is watching my parents all the years that, that I was growing up. My parents have now been married for oh, well over 50 years. And I think about what I watched when I was a kid growing up in our home. My dad worked long hours. He worked a six-day week as he was opening his own pharmacy and operating that for decades. And dad would come home at the end of a work day. And I just so vividly remember this, that my mom, she'd usually be busy in the kitchen cooking dinner. But when dad would come in, no matter what she was doing or how involved she was in that, she would always respond in the same way. She would drop what she was doing, and she would go and give him a kiss on the lips before he, you know, he's always headed to the, back to the bedroom to get out of his lab coat and stuff from running the pharmacy. But he would never make it to the back of the house without mom smiling and greeting him and giving him a kiss before he was able to go and change clothes. And you may say, what's a big deal about that? It's a big deal because it honored him. The look on her face and the willingness to drop what she was doing because dad was in the house. And my dad is not a demanding man. He's a very quiet, low-key kind of guy who would never insist on that. But it was her way of saying, no matter what else has been going on in my day, I want you to know that this is the best part of my day right here. That, that the person that I love has just come home. And in just that minute, to express that with a kiss, but also with a look. In, um, by the way, if you're wanting to just work on your marriage, let me encourage you to read a book. It's been around for 30 years by Gary Smalley and John Trent. It's called Love is a Decision. It's one of the most practical books. Uh, every couple I've ever married in the last 25 years, every, every couple that I've ever officiated their wedding, I've had them read this book because it's so down to earth about how to have a great relationship. And a part of what they teach in the book is that the foundation of every great relationship it's got the first two parts of it are trust and honor. If you can't trust the other person, boy, you've got a, a major foundational problem. But learning to honor each other all the time. And they have a chapter in the book that's called the awe is in the eye of the beholder. That it's not up to the other person to make sure that we honor them. It's just a decision on our part. 
how to respond. And we all know what it's like to have somebody just in love with us and the look in their eyes and on their face that says, ah, the person that I love has just come home. The person I'm most crazy about, my best friend in the whole world has just come in the room and your eyes, the ah on your face communicate that better than anything. You can't tell me that it doesn't delight your heart to have somebody do that for you. Isn't that fantastic when somebody does that? It doesn't cost you a dime. But when just the looks is, I just love that you're here. I love looking at you. I drive Jackie crazy because I I tell her this all the time. I'm like, I just love to look at you. We were both having one of those mornings this morning where it's like, you know, you, you just have mornings where you don't feel good about yourself. You get dressed and you go to leave and you look in the mirror and go, dang, I don't like anything that I see. Uh, I, I mean, just nothing. She was having one of those mornings. I was feeling that way about myself this morning. But I look at her and I'm like, you don't need to feel that way because you look good, baby. That, you know. But you can say that with your eyes all the time. Honoring one another. Calling out the best in one another. The third group that we're called to honor is those in authority. Romans chapter 13, Paul said this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. Give to everyone what you owe them. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. There's no week that it would be more appropriate for us to talk about this than right now. Two days from now, hopefully we'll all be at the polls Electing our next president. Probably every person under the sound of my voice has got some very strong feelings about who, whom we're going to elect this time around. Regardless of who that person turns out to be, the scriptures are very clear. They did not get there by accident. They did not get there by coincidence. They got there only by God's authority. And you may say... Are you trying to tell me that person A or person B is the kind of person that God would want to be the president of this country? I'm not saying that their character necessarily lines up with the character of God. I'm not making any comment on their character. I'm simply repeating what the scriptures say. Nobody gets to that office except by God's design. The Lord's had me in in Kings in the Old Testament in my quiet times lately. There's nothing that's a better reminder of how God can use anybody he wants to to ultimately accomplish his great plan. Now, sometimes along the way, God would install terrible kings because it's what the people needed to get them back to a point that they would repent and turn to him. That's a really scary thought. But at the end of the day, we don't have to fret about that. We should take part in the process We should absolutely bathe it in prayer. But at the end of the day, I I won't lose a moment of sleep about who's going to be elected president. Because at the end of the day, I'm a part of a kingdom that's much greater than the republic that is the United States. And the king over that kingdom, he is the king of all kings. And he determines who's going to be president and who's going to be vice president. And at the end of the day, as long as his will is accomplished, we can rest in that. But we can do more than rest. We're called to do more than rest in that. We're called to honor those that he installs. Now, this is a weird thing. I mean, it's not nearly as weird for us as it was for Christians in the first century. I mean, we look at this and we could say this or that about Donald or Hillary or whomever. But good heavens. I mean, I don't think we're worried about either of them boiling Christians in oil. 
Neither of them has said as a part of their platform, we're going to saw followers of Christ in half. We're going to soak them in oil and then we're going to tie them on poles and set them on fire and light the streets at night with these people. That's what the Roman emperors were doing. And Paul writes to Christians in Rome and says, I need to tell you about this this whole thing of people wanting to rebel against the authorities. You need to understand, as subjects of Rome, there is no authority except that which God has put in place. We can take a chill pill about Mr. Trump and Mrs. Clinton when we realize that the Roman emperors who for 300 years terrorized all of Christianity... God could use even them. And oh, by the way, though it took time, within 300 years, God could take the Roman authorities who tried to destroy Christianity, which you can't because the blood of the saints are the seed of the church. And within 300 years, he turns it upside down when he converts the Roman emperor to Christianity and and suddenly the Roman empire becomes a Christian empire. God is able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish But along the way, good or bad, Republican or Democrat or Independent, we as believers must honor those in authority. That doesn't go down easy at times. We may not like them. You don't have to like them. You have to honor them. When we honor them, I mean, part of where that starts is we acknowledge that even if the person that we did not vote for gets elected, that is our president. I know a bunch of people don't want to say that. I know this week we're going to elect somebody I'm not going to vote for, even though I'm going to vote. But that will be my president for the next four years. It won't be my king, but they'll be my president. And I will honor them as my president. I will pray for them. I will speak respectfully of them. And if they run again in four years, I'll vote for somebody other than them. But I will honor them every day that they are in office, not because I want to, but because the Scriptures call me to that and because I need for them to rise to the occasion. Honor helps people to be more than what they would have been. We need to honor our leaders, all of those in authority. We need for them to be the best version of who they are. That applies to presidents. That applies to coaches, that applies to teachers, that applies to bosses. Not just the good ones, not just the friendly ones and the funny ones, to all of those in authority over us. You may work in a place where you would love to kill your boss. You may work in a place where your boss is a moron and you're, you know that you're twice as smart as they are and you're, you're squirming going, you're telling me I'm supposed to honor this nitwit? Understand this, you don't get to be over until you learn to be under. We must learn to be under authority, and sometimes under authority that isn't smart, that isn't discerning. And we must learn how to honor even them if we're going to be over and ever lead well. You with me? That's not the fun part, is it? But it is an important part. And then the fourth and final instruction is, we are called to honor our pastors and spiritual leaders. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Now, 
you know, under different circumstances, it would feel really weird actually preaching this text back to you. Because it's like, honor me. In fact, double honor me. Which is what the passage says. The reason it's not really uncomfortable teaching this passage is because I really can honestly say it's so cool to be a part of a church like Freedom where you already do this. You already are so faithful to honor those who are in leadership. It's actually a joy, which is what this, what Paul and the writers of the New Testament say. Make it a joy for those who lead you within the church. And it is. It's a joy to get to be a pastor in Freedom Church where it's not a constant dogfight. It's not a constant power struggle of, of people always wanting to, to question authority and work against authority. I've been in those churches. Thank you, Jesus, that I am not anymore. It's miserable to be in those environments. Thank you for being a family of people who say, hey, we're going to pray together. We're going to seek the Lord together. But, Pastor, when God gives you a word, gives you a direction, tell us what it is, and let's get on board and go. Point us in a direction. That's so much the heart of this church. Not blind fellowship, but a heart that says, we're on board together. We support our leadership, and we believe in God's ability to lead us as a church. Thank you for being that. All I would add to that is this. The kind of honor for authority that he's talking about there, it's not just about honoring the person who is like the senior pastor in a church. We have multiple pastors in our church, and we have a a multitude of people who are in places of spiritual authority in Freedom Church. If you're in a small group, you're under a very important covering of spiritual authority there. Those are, the, those are the sergeants of this army. You know, in any army, it's the sergeants that get everything done. Small group leaders are all pastors. Have you honored your small group leaders lately? Have you looked for ways to really encourage them and bless them? I'll tell you what, the people who host you in those homes every week, too, they are worthy of honor because of how they serve you there. I'll tell you what, right now, this very minute, We've got some people on the other side of that wall. They are worthy of honor because they are pastoring, leading, and shepherding our children. Yes. Every Wednesday for two hours, we've got a crowd of teenagers up here who are being pastored and shepherded by leaders who invest their time and energy. We need to honor leaders like this. If you've got kids that are being shepherded by others... If you don't already know them, find out the names of those leaders. Find out when their birthdays are. Go out of your way to send them a card. Bring them a gift. Honor them on their birthday. Just let them know how much you appreciate the investment that they make and how God is using them. And you don't have to wait any later in the year than right now. You don't have to wait for Christmas to do it. Do it now. Honor those people. And the Lord will be pleased with that. So here's your assignment from the message today. Paul in Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another. Everybody say, outdo one another. All of us competitive nuts in the room want to do this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Look for ways to honor those who are around you. Honor your parents. Honor your mate. Honor those in authority. Honor those who lead well in the church. Now... I started out with the issue of why is it then in America we have such a problem showing honor? Why is honor not a big deal in American culture? And I would suggest this, that the reason our culture is so dishonoring 
are just so not cognizant of the issue of honor is because people are not beginning by honoring God. People who truly live with honor and who honor those that they should, it is rooted in a heart that seeks to first honor God. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-three says, You who fear the Lord, praise Him, all you descendants of Jacob, honor Him. Revere Him, all you descendants of Israel. Now, I'll tell you, there are, there's quite a list of people that I, I would happily stand here and want to honor today. I, would, I, I could honor my parents for the example that they've set and the lives that they've lived. I could honor my wife today for being just the friend and helpmate and follower of Jesus that he is. I mean, I, that she is. That, well, that didn't sound good. Wow. Yeah, that she is. Sorry, honey. I could name a lot of people that have made an impact on my life that I want to honor, but there is nobody that I would want to honor today more than Jesus. He's changed my life. He's done for me what no one else would do. I mean, he sought me out. He pursued me. He not only called me into a relationship with himself, but I mean, he has had a plan for my life. He's been giving direction whenever I would have gotten so far off course. He has done for me what no one else could do. And I want to honor him above everybody else. We live in a time today when people talk about God and they just want to refer to him as the big man upstairs. The big guy. The big guy upstairs. Jesus. Yeah, me and Jesus is tight. He's my homeboy. I just want to remind us, God is not the big man upstairs. He is not just the guy and Jesus is nobody's homeboy. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the one who by his powerful word holds every atom and molecule in the universe in place. Everything and everyone are under his authority. He left the glory of heaven, took on human form, and experienced all of the hardship of humanity, but then took the weight of my sin and your sin and all the guilt and shame, the pain and punishment that it deserved. And because of his courage and his passion, he endured all of that. He shed his blood, not figuratively speaking. He was tortured. He was mutilated. And for hours, he hung and publicly bled out while stripped naked. That's who Jesus is. He's nobody's homeboy. He is a warrior. He is the king. He is my savior. And I will live to honor him. He deserves nothing less. We should live to honor him. And those that he cares about. I'll close with this. It was World Series week. And the Cubs, after 108 years, finally won it. My goodness. The apocalypse must be near. I mean, it's when the Cubs finally won something. So I'll I'll close with a baseball illustration. Everybody remembers, at least historically remembers, who Babe Ruth was. In my opinion, there's probably never been a baseball player or never will be a baseball player as great as him. It's hard to put into perspective how how great he was. 714 home runs, an ERA of 2.2. If you're a baseball fan at all, you should not have an ERA if you have led the major leagues in home runs, led the American League 12 consecutive years, seven World Series titles. He was the greatest baseball player of all time. He autographed seven of his home run bats ever. And somehow, one of the seven, the very first home run bat that Babe Ruth ever, ever autographed, disappeared. 
Now, if you know anything about sports memorabilia and what crazy people we are today, what we'll pay for things, you can appreciate that an autographed Babe Ruth home run bat is a big deal. The first of the only seven he ever signed just disappeared completely for many, many decades, and no one knew where it was until 2006. I want to briefly tell you what happened to that. As it turns out, Babe Ruth's agent got him to autograph the bat, and this was before Babe was quite as stellar of a, of a superstar as he became. And so his agent gave the bat away as a prize at a home run derby. And so a fairly ordinary guy who took part in this little contest won the home run derby, and he was given this Babe Ruth bat. And the guy at the time appreciated what an incredible gift that was, and so he kept it as his most treasured possession. And then it turned out he was a young man at that time. He lived a really, really long time. He didn't tell anybody what he had, and he outlived all of his family and his contemporaries. He lived to be that old. And at the end of his life, there was a nurse who was taking care of him. She had been taking care of him for years, and when he was on his deathbed and about to pass, he called her to him, and he said, you know, I don't have anybody left in my family. It's just you who's taking care of me, and so I want to give you my most prized possession. And he gives her the autographed Babe Ruth bat. Well, clearly she was not a big baseball fan because she had no idea of its value, so she took it home and put it under her bed where it stayed for the next 18 years. The old guy passed, and his nurse had a Babe Ruth bat under her bed for 18 years. And in 2006, she had hit on hard times and was trying to figure out how to make a go of things. And she decided she wanted to try and open a restaurant. She didn't have any money to do that. And she's trying to figure out where to come up with any money. And it dawns on her one day, you know that old guy I used to take care of? He gave me a bat one day and said it was his most prized possession. I wonder if I could sell it for a few dollars, get anything out of that that might help me. So she pulled the bat out from under her bed, went to the local sports memorabilia store, and said, I've got this home run bat that was signed by Babe Ruth. Is it worth anything? And the guy's eyes turned into saucers because he recognized what he was looking at. It's the missing original one of the seven. He immediately started calling sports figures, people who would, uh, specialists who would know how to authenticate this thing, got them in immediately, and they said, it's the real deal. It's the missing bat. The lady, with their help, put the bat up for auction, and in 2006, it sold for $1,300,000. And what's more striking than how much she got for the bat is what she did with the money. She took a small portion of the money and she opened a restaurant as she wanted to do to make a new start of things. But all of the money that remained with that, she started a foundation, the proceeds from which would go to help the children that Babe Ruth declared at the end of his life that he wanted to help. And so all the rest of the money from the bat went into this foundation to help these children who would be total strangers to this lady. And a reporter went to her and asked the question, why on earth? I mean, you were in dire straits financially. You still are. You suddenly had this windfall, $1.3 million, and yet you've given the vast majority of this money away to people who really don't seem to like they should have meant anything to you. Why would you do that? And I want to read you her response. Her answer to the question was, the bat was only valuable because Babe Ruth put his name on it. So the only reasonable thing that I could do was something that would honor his life because he made it valuable. She gave away most of the money, 
to honor the one who ultimately caused her to receive it. He gave value to the bat because he owned it and he put his name on it. What does that have to do with anything? Well, it's a picture of what's happened to us. We can feel so worthless. A lot of times we do. And I want to tell you that the reason that you have value and deserve honor is because Jesus not only made you, he's put his name on you. Signed in his blood. If you're a follower of Christ, you are a little Christ. You are a Christian. His name is on you. You have value because you are his. You're a child of the king. And now, the only appropriate response is to give ourselves away to the one who has honored us in such a big way. To give ourselves to the people and things that he chose to care about. And so we honor those that he honored. Let's be a generation that's different. Let's be the heart of a generation that says we're going to live differently. We're going to be a people of honor. We're not just going to honor those who honor us. We're going to honor the Lord above all. And we're going to honor the people that God puts in our lives that matter. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer right now? Father, we realize when we look at our own lives that there are so many times and ways where we have failed to honor you. And we ask you to please forgive us for that. Please help us to realize how worthy you are. We, we pause right now and together say, Jesus, we want to honor you. We want to live to honor you. And in doing that, we want to honor those that you've put in our lives. Now I want to ask you right now, whether you're in the room or watching online, of the four different areas that God says that we are to extend honor, is there one that the Holy Spirit has put his finger on in your life? The way that you should honor your parents, the way you should honor your mate, that you honor those in authority, the way that you honor leaders within the church. If the Holy Spirit's put his finger on one of those to just show you there's a lack of honor, would you just simply do business with God over that right now? Begin by just confessing it. Don't try and defend it. Just confess it. Ask God to show you how you can begin now to have a new track record of honoring those that he calls you to honor. God, would you give us the grace and the wisdom to know how to live this out? Maybe feelings have been hurt. Maybe there's been stuff that has caused us to be distrustful. Please help us to extend honor and call out the best in those around us. And help us to honor you above all with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.